Welcome to the Altmetric podcast, where we bring you the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. I'm your host, Lucy Goodchild. <coughs> As much of the world tentatively returns to normal after months of COVID-19 lockdown, we're constantly flooded with instructions and information about how to remain healthy. But is it all trustworthy? In this episode of the Altmetric podcast, we talk to one of the researchers behind a study that suggests a quarter of the videos researchers analysed on YouTube contain information about coronavirus that's not factually accurate. The toll the COVID-19 pandemic has taken on global society is significant and it's not over yet. A quick look at the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre shows that by late July 2020, there had been over 16.3 million cases and 650,000 deaths from coronavirus. And there are certainly more to come. While we navigate what many are calling the new normal, with regulations around distancing, hygiene and mask wearing, we're getting information from a variety of sources, including social media. A study by a team of researchers in Ottawa, Canada, suggests that it's a good idea to double-check the information we see on YouTube. In their study of 69 videos about COVID-19, they found that more than a quarter contained misleading information. Their paper, published in BMJ Global Health, got global news coverage, earning an altmetric attention score of over 1,470. I spoke to the lead author of the paper, Heidi Lee from the University of Ottawa, about the study the coverage, and how we can fact-check what we find online. Thanks very much for talking to me today. I wanted to start by asking about your background. So you're a medical student. Yes, uh, I'm a third-year medical student at the University of Ottawa, and then my co-author, Adrian, is also a second-year medical student, and David is a master's student at Carleton. And then our last author, Dr. James Chan, he's a general internist at the Ottawa Hospital. Okay. What made you look at COVID-19 content on YouTube? How did this study come about? I think the main thing, I was at the grocery store, actually. Um, it was kind of frustrated because there's a lot of hoarding going on. I had to wait like two hours to get toilet paper. And then I just see people touching their faces, coughing in their hands. And I was wondering, like, how do you actually ensure that the public complies with guidelines. Like there are guidelines being put out. As medical students, we know that the source of the information, critically appraising that source is, is really important because anyone can put information out there, but it may not be true. Um, and so uh, when I got home, I, I just like looked at the news and I looked at, I was on YouTube searching up something else. And I, I found like all these like COVID videos were getting a lot of attention and I, I clicked on one of them and there's, a quite a number of facts in that video that were not factually accurate. Um, and you can tell that the person giving a, giving that talk was just a lame person um, who may, may, may or may not have understood uh, the public health guidelines or were up to date with them. And so we decided just to like analyze the videos and we started that night actually, um, just to get a sense of the ideas and information that people are um, putting out there. Um, particularly relevant for our generation. So I'm 24. Um, and I find a lot of people in my generation, in my age, uh, we turn to social media, like we're always on Instagram and YouTube on Facebook on Twitter. And inevitably, this information that are put out on those platforms are going to affect 
um, the way we see things. Um, and in particular, I guess, COVID-19, um, that's why we decided really just to evaluate the quality of the information on YouTube, especially given that there's been other st previous studies that have been conducted during the Ebola virus, um, the Zika outbreak, and we wanted to see if our findings were be, would be similar. So what did you do? What was the basis for the study? So we took um, the top uh, 75 most viewed videos from a search of YouTube. We used the keywords coronavirus and COVID-19. And then we had a pre-established inclusion and exclusion criteria. So videos that were duplicate, non-English, non-audio or non-visual or too, or too long. So exceeding one hour was what we defined as too long um, were excluded. And then we um, had two reviewers review each video to see what, what the content was. And so the specific scores that we use to assess the videos um, are ones that have been used previously in the literature. So the modified discern criteria and the JAMA scores evaluate the reliability of the information. So specifically that entails whether the video content creator actually put down their credentials, put down the source of the information. So that would, a video that does that would have higher scores on those parameters. And then in terms of content, so e even if the information was reliable, if it's not useful, meaning that it doesn't provide enough information about COVID-19, then it wouldn't be very um, a good video, I guess. So we created this COVID-19 specific score, mainly aimed to target different categories. So transmission, the epidemiology, um, proper management, et cetera. And so as videos we get a point in each category if they touched upon one of those five categories. And then we basically found that uh, overwhelming amount of videos, so about over one quarter, um, had actually a misleading fact. So we dichotomized it. So if a video had a piece of information that was not factual, it would be categorized into the non-factual category. And that was just significant. So what, what had you expected to find? Um, we expected to find that there was there would be a number of videos that had non-factual information, probably not to the extent that we did. So it was over 25%. But then when we look in the liter literature, um, going back, we see that the three papers published during the H1N1 pandemic, the Ebola outbreak, and the Zika outbreak, both found very similar um, percentage of videos that were misleading. So they reported about 23 to 26% in their uh, cohort. It is important to recognize that um, all those three studies and, in, and even our study, uh, one of the limitations is that of course, we can only look at a snapshot in time, look at only maybe like 75 videos for our sample size. So within our 75 videos, after which um, I think we included in 69 videos after the inclusion exclusion criteria, 25% um, were misleading. So. There might be more videos on YouTube now, especially given that YouTube has um, put out a COVID-19 misinformation policy. I think it was late May. The platforms are trying to, I guess, fight misinformation. And it's very plausible that these numbers may change um, as social media platforms are increasingly aware of the potential for independent consumers to put out um, their own videos, like conspiracy theorists. So um, we were, surprised at that time to find that, but it's, it's very reassuring to see that uh, there's been measures that are in place since then to make sure that people are receiving good information.
I was going to ask you, do you think there need to be changes made in the way YouTube in particular or social media in general are monitored? You know, it, that's a hard question because um, on one hand, the power of a social media platform is the ability of anyone in the entire world to put out content, to, to discuss points of view. That's like freedom of speech, freedom of creativity. Um, and so that is actually part of why these social media platforms are so incredibly influential. Uh, but on the flip side, you can't expect a social media platform to police the actions of individuals across the world every second of every single day, because that's actually how fast content changes on these platforms. So I would say that we see in the news that a lot of these social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, um, you, and now YouTube, they have policies in place to um, fight misinformation, to make sure that the community remains as um, factual in, in the COVID sense and as like respectful in other senses as much as possible. But ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think it's the responsibility of the media platform once they put the appropriate policies in place and encourage users to fact check their content. It really boils down to the individual consumer. So if you are searching for information, I think it's very important to recognize the potential for biases, for misinformation, um, downright not factual information, uh, and to seek out the appropriate sources. So for COVID-19 in particular, um, looking at public health guidelines, WHO, your local municipality, those guidelines would be hopefully the most accurate and would be, would be, should be considered um, by, by, I guess, by individuals as the top level of evidence. Yeah, I, I was thinking, how do we trust or, you know, what can we do to verify the information we see on YouTube? But did you see any patterns or any links between the content that was non-factual and the content that was factual? Or were there any kind of signs that you spotted? Oh, for sure. So we actually coded the source of all the videos and we noticed that um, of this 19 non-factual videos, none of them were from the government or professional sources, i.e. doctors, public health officials, um, the WHO, a huge organizations. So this shows us that these sources are the most reputable and as we would likely expect. So if you have a doctor or public health official talking, we would hopefully um, expect that these people are providing factual information and they are. The non-factual information typically comes from entertainment news, um, network news, internet news, um, and consumer videos. So these are just random individuals uh, with no credentials giving information. So for these sources, um, we, we turn to network news a lot for information. So I think the main thing is if we get our information there, it's, not, it's a great source. We just need to make sure that do a quick Google search, look at the WHO um, guidelines, look at public health guidelines. So like the Canadian government, for example, publish, has a website and they publish um, updates on coronavirus. So just fact checking your information that way would be one strategy that people can use to make sure that their information is correct. And you mentioned conspiracy theories and things. Did you see any links with other things happening? I know there was a big coronavirus 5G conspiracy theory early on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we saw something similar. Um, that video in particular was down. Um, 
since we actually published it, I noticed. Um, but I mean, people are going to try to put out information they believe to be true out there. I, I don't think anyone has bad intentions per se. I just think um, there's no way anyone can like YouTube or anyone else can really police this content. I mean, on YouTube, you can report content. So I'm maybe that's how it got taken down uh, by YouTube. But um, I don't think there's many links. Usually, though, these conspiracy theorists are, are individuals instead of organizations, I have noticed. Um, but these could be individuals from all types of backgrounds. As you mentioned, the, the 5G problem, that was actually someone who was a professional. So I think the main take home message from all this is that uh, there isn't any blame here. There isn't any way that we can police content. So the main thing is for consumers to know um, how to fact check their content appropriately from good sources, which are government organizations, health organizations and doctors, professionals, public health officials are usually the go to places. Did anything surprise you in your findings? Not really. I would say I, given what was re previously reported in the literature, it was very consistent. Our findings are super consistent with the H1N1, Ebola and Zika virus paper. And also when you just anecdotally, when, when you go speak with people in your community, you notice a lot of people may not have up-to-date information and it's understandable as content is information guidelines are changing day to day. What we have found that was really very reassuring is that the places where we would expect to find good information, we're putting out um, reliable factual information about COVID. So it, it wouldn't be a good sign if the government guidelines and government videos and health professional videos were uh, reporting not factual information, but they were. So I think that's a that's something we expected to find, and it was very reassuring that we found that. Yeah. Well, the world listened. You got lots of news coverage. Um, you have an altmetric attention score of one thousand two hundred ninety-three. Um, what did you do to get that news coverage? I mean, we didn't do anything in particular. <laughs> the VMJ actually reached out to us and gave us a press release to read over. Um, and then they published it. And I really honestly didn't expect much from this. We're just two medical students and a master's student and a doctor from, from Ottawa <laughs> in Canada. And then it got attraction. I think people were very interested because of the whole media spotlight on misinformation. So I know that earlier on in this whole coronavirus saga, it was Twitter that got a lot of, lot of attention. And then it was the pandemic video. So I think people are catching on to the fact that there is a lot of misinformation out there and that's why news outlets were interested and coronavirus is a really really relevant topic because it affects the way we live and right now actually um so yeah we were we were we were pleased to see that our research was being read was being considered and i think that's the ultimate goal of any researcher yeah definitely what was the experience like? Because you had a lot of news coverage. Were, were journalists calling you? Yes, uh, they were emailing me. My email inbox got flooded. Um, I think we ended up with like 183. I don't remember the, the total number of news articles. Um, some of the reporters reached out to us and got our opinions on things, especially clarifications on points that they didn't quite understand in our, in our research paper, um, which we really appreciated. I mean, I... 
honestly really, really appreciate it when journalists reach out to the people who conducted the research to make sure that whatever they're reporting in their catchy news article is actually factually accurate and really represents what the content is in the paper. Because we understand that um, scientific research can be hard to, to report on. I mean, even just interpreting all these mean differences, p-values. So I actually had one reporter reach out to us and he didn't understand the p-values, which is definitely understandable. He reached out to us and we spent a couple emails and I explained to him, I gave him the interpretation of our findings. And I really appreciated that because it gave us a chance to make sure that whatever he reported was factually accurate. And it was, it was factually accurate in his, in his um, article. It was definitely busy uh, just responding to everyone and making sure that everyone had the information they needed for their news article. But uh, it, was, it was nice to see our research getting attention. Yeah, I bet. And really great that you took responsibility for, for making sure it was accurate. Yeah. So what did you think of the coverage? It was, um, it was very flattering in the sense that uh, we felt like our findings were impactful. And, but we also um, want to make sure that news outlets report our findings appropriately. So I want to emphasize that the intent of this research and our findings were not to criticize any organization in particular, even the people who uploaded non-factual videos, which is why we didn't release them, because we didn't think that was fair. Um, it is not up to YouTube as well to, um, to police this content. So there's absolutely no blame for the people who uploaded it, as well as uh, YouTube as a social media platform. Um, but we found that a lot of the news outlets were taking one part of our, our paper and then sort of sometimes misrepresenting uh, our findings or uh, sensationalizing them. So our papers, if you, if you, if you read the paper, we, we put down our strategy that was developed a priori. We only had 69 videos and we mentioned that as one of the limitations in our papers that we can't capture all the videos on coronavirus. We tried to capture the majority that received the most views, but the content is changing daily. New guidelines, new policies are being put in place constantly. So um, our findings have to be taken into context of these limitations. So I think um, it's, we're not here trying to say that 25% uh, of all YouTube videos are misleading. That's not accurate at all. We're saying that in our sample size, um, we found 25% had non-factual information, some of which was probably worse than some other videos. So a video could just put out a, something that was against one of the WHO guidelines at that time. And that would be classified as non-factual. That's the mild end of the spectrum to uh, a couple videos with conspiracy theories. So I guess the media attention was great because it got um, it got a lot of talk, discussion, which is what the point of research is. But uh, I want people to know that we're not pointing a finger at anyone. We're not pointing a finger at YouTube in particular. It's just we, we see that good sources of information, such as government and big institutions are not as represented in our video content, but they had the most factual videos, but they had the least number of views. And we just want uh, people to start thinking about how can we improve this? How can we um, put out good content there in future pandemics? Because it's gonna happen. Um, and we know that public compliance with public health measures is the number one 
a determinant of whether a country comes out of this in a good state or unfortunately not such a great state. So that's the, really just the take home message. Yeah. And you had some recommendations for supporting that in your conclusion. Yeah. There's, I guess, three points of our, of our paper. So the key findings in particular is that um, we have a lot of misinformation and we know from other studies and that misinformation is very powerful because as we see in the coronavirus era, the most powerful preventative measure for community spread or just spread in, I guess, in the country in general is really every single individual's compliance with social distancing rules, proper sanitizing. And then now we see, okay, there's, there's value of wearing masks. So these guidelines are there, they're evidence-based and they're widely supported by health organizations and professionals. However, if the gross majority of individuals in that particular community don't follow these rules because they don't believe that they're necessary, then we see spikes, we see problems, we see more hospitalizations. So when we consider this and we look at our findings, we find that, okay, well, all these government organizations are putting out very factual information. Um, and then there is a small subset of consumers and what um, just other organizations that are not. And then we look at the demographics of the people that are more likely to not comply with public health measures, which are usually typically the younger individuals, um, anecdotally, I will say, um, then we see a potential for improvement. So the improvement is given that so many individuals and particularly the young individuals use YouTube, view YouTube and believe in the content, then we want one, more representation of better sources. So government organizations who typically use websites and static communication tools, they should probably try to put more content out on YouTube. And then two, to really just start the discussion and inform everyone of the importance of critically evaluating the source, critically evaluating the evidence, even providing a list of good resources. So your doctor visiting your doctor, um, visiting government websites um, or, or health, public health organizations. And then um, the, I guess the last point is really just to do your part. So if you find that you see something that, you know, perhaps you see a party going on, then maybe inform people with the intent of knowing that people typically don't have bad intentions. It's just mainly they're maybe not informed. And if you are informed, then maybe just pass it on to those around you, I think. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. Thanks. We like to end these interviews by asking, what would be your advice to other people who want to engage the public, get some public attention for their research? Not quite sure if you want public attention for your research. It's a large store there. So you get a lot of, uh, I mean, it's, it's primarily a good thing. You get a lot of attention, but then you also get, um, like I, I, you get some weird emails from weird people. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, um, that being said, I think the main thing is really the topic. I mean, we all know, like I've done other research projects that, perhaps were uh, more rigorous and the findings were really cool and the, it wasn't, the topic wasn't as relevant. It wasn't as widely appealing to such a huge demographic of people. So if you are doing research with the intent of trying to uh, get a high altmetric score or make sure that it's well covered, then 
prior to starting, you should really sit down and look at your topic and think about if I was a random person in society, would I be interested in this? If yes, then you probably have a winner of a topic right there. So it's really just the topic that is um, the most important determinant of whether your research gets a lot of attention. Um, and then the second part of that is making sure that your re research is rigorous. So always making sure that um, you collect the data appropriately, analyze the data appropriately, draw the proper conclusions. And if everything in your paper is um, not refutable, i.e. like if you don't make wild conclusions, then um, it would be a good thing, I think. And also choosing the appropriate journal. So um, BMJ is a great journal. It has a high impact factor. It's very reputable. And we publish in BMJ Global Health, which is open access. And definitely the open access part helps increase the visibility of your research, since a lot of people don't have subscriptions to journals, which can be very pricey. Yeah, so that's my advice to researchers who want a high metric score, is just to have a good idea, um, make sure your research is rock solid, um, and choose a good journal that would um, help support you in your endeavor. Brilliant. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you and I wish you luck with the rest of quarantine lockdown periods. I hope you manage to get back to some normality with, with medical school soon. Yeah, hopefully we're starting again soon next week. So we'll see how that goes. Do you have any other research in store? Um, yeah, I'm still doing some other research projects. Um, I, I love research, any type of research, to be honest, like any topic. Um, I just like the idea of having a new new idea that no one really knows the answer to and then trying to find it. Um, I like the rigorous methodology that you use. I like the fact that you get so much feedback along the way, at the peer review process, working with supervisors. It really opens up the door for me to learn more about what I need to know as a, as a future clinician. Medicine is all evidence-based. It's all research-based. Uh, our guidelines are changing because research is evolving. And it's so important for clinicians to actually be able to interpret and critique research appropriately. So I'm, I'm still doing research. Um, I probably will get a master's during my residency. That's my goal. Um, and uh, we'll see where that takes me. Wow, that's amazing. Good luck with it. Um, look forward to reading some more of your research. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another headline-grabbing study. Curious what sort of attention your article's getting? Find out at altmetric.com. Until next time.